Hello everybody and welcome to What Would The Smart Party Do? This week I'm at the Kraken in Germany uh, and I have a very special guest. So I'm here with Sandy Peterson from Peterson Games. Hi Sandy, how are you? I'm doing great. Cool, so you've got um, you brought some uh, exciting new demo games, things in the pipeline. Is there anything new from Peterson Games you can give us a description? Uh, yes, so I brought four prototypes for upcoming products and uh, these are all going to be of course Kickstarter because that is the business model that works for my, my board games. And uh, coming up in November is Evil High Priest. Evil High Priest is, uh, the main designer is actually my son Lincoln, though I participated heavily on it. Uh, so it's his first uh, published product. It is, in this game, you are a priest of Cthulhu or some other great old one. And all the other players are priests of the same uh, great old one. But only one of you can become the High Priest. And you do this by freeing your great old one, and when he rises from the depths or comes down from the sky or out of wherever he comes from, then he d decides who has done the most work to free him, and that guy becomes the high priest. And then he is presumably eaten last or first, or whatever the reward is that you get. But that happens after sure. games, you don't care. So the it's unique, it's, a, it's very much a Euro worker placement style game where you have your cultists and you start with only a couple cultists and you have to break the rest out of the asylum where they're held because like, they're loony, right? <laughs> and so you break them out and you send them around. They go to different towns in uh, like Dunwich or, or places like Wisconsin University. Eventually you, you're able to get them to start doing rituals to get you more stuff. And then meanwhile, there's this big cult board. The central part of the game is a huge cult board with a big glyph of that god. So if you're worshipping Cthulhu, it's the Cthulhu glyph. And, and it's covered with sights on it, and these sights have elder signs that you break off. And when you break off the elder sign, you get it as a trophy, and uh, uh, you also can unlock a, a thing that you can do on that area, or you can put workers on later on in later rounds. So the unique thing is that every cult board, of which we have ten, is extremely different. So, in, so one of the features of most uh, worker placement games is that the... The board doesn't change. It's like the hero of the game is always the same. Yeah, but in yeah, this yeah. one, the board changes, and the boards are really different. Cthulhu feels very differently from the from uh, Shub-Niggurath, which in turn feels very differently from Windwalker or the other one. So, so there's boards for all these characters, and you, and when you go on it, you're playing uh, over the way, and it's really harsh, and your cultists keep running off to uh, turn into to mutate into monsters and stuff, and. And uh, there's a constant repeatable attacks. You go to Cthulhu's board, and it's kind of the, the deep ones are showering people with gifts, which is good when they shower you with gifts, but it's bad when they shower your rivals with gifts and <laughs> yeah, so forth. So anyway, that's a little of Evil High Priest take spot. Depending on how many players you have and how experienced you are, it's a, it's a, like one to two hours to play. Yeah, well, you very kindly gave us a demo yesterday. Really, really fun game, actually. So, um, are you are you finding that your your son's following your footsteps? Is he like, like your sort of brain, or is he just? Yeah, like, I would never have done a worker placement game, so he doesn't think exactly the same as me. Right, cool. But it's, uh, it's, I mean, I play them and I enjoy them, but they're not really. I'm, I don't have my my head wrapped around designing them, you know. So, but they, but his hit was so. There we go. And of course, the thing is that he's hasn't. This isn't like his first step into design because. All along, in our other games we've done, he has been assisting in the playtests and discussing the games, and uh, so he has he has had uh, influence in those games. Right, so it's a core part of the company, right? Yeah, and, yeah uh -huh. that sort of stuff. So, so, so are you more kind of a, an Ameri Trash kind of guy? Have you got a game coming up that's more yes, yours? Yes, I do. Uh, the, uh, the well, I have two sort of Ameri Trash games. There's the um, 
the next game that we're going to kickstart after Evil High Priest, which is just in November, so it's coming up real soon, uh, less than a month away, is called Planet Apocalypse. And in this game, this is a cooperative game in which hell has risen up to wipe out uh, humanity, and uh, you lead heroes against the legions of hell. Wow, it's okay. modern age, uh, kind of post-apocalypse, because with hell rising up, the world is a you know is in a post-apocalyptic state. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the art is done by um, uh, Kevin or Keith Thompson, who is a uh, who mostly works in movies. Uh, he did the the big baddie for the recent for the soon coming out movie called The Ritual. He did the, the monsters for Pacific Rim by Guillermo del Toro, nice, which yeah. is the part of that movie that I liked. Because um, <laughs> it sure wasn't the dialogue, right? Five, but, yeah. A wicked waste of Idris Elba, I thought. Yeah, absolutely. You know, but uh, uh, <laughs> anyway, so but, he, but the monsters were cool, which he did. Yeah. So he's doing the monsters for Planet Apocalypse, and they're very distinctive, quirky-looking monsters. Some of them have been visible online. People can have a look. And so this game is the monsters are pouring through the gate, trying to get through the world. You have to fight your way through the hordes of monsters uh, to get to the big bad old one. So it's part combat, it's part tower defense, it's part semi role playing because you're leveling up your character as you fight, getting what we call gifts. And every character is very distinct and different and has their own like tech tree of how they um, how they improve themselves. So cool. every game feels different. There's a bunch of different lords. And there's, there's many bosses that they skew out periodically that are also changing the game up in a big way. Uh, so, and have you got a chance against these legions of hell? Is it well? I mean, yeah. I mean, it's an, it's a co-op game, so usually you lose. Right. Yeah. Right. But there's also ten maps, and the maps get progressively harder. So after you get to the point that you can mostly win the first couple maps, you can move on to the harder ones. And, right. and then there's other ways of punching it up. And so if if you're playing the hardest map, which is the Inferno, with at one of the harder difficulty levels, then like you're it's it's really hard. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not saying it's impossible, but it requires both luck and skill. And a lot of effort, I presume. Yeah. Practice. Yeah. Excellent. So, uh, have you got a sci-fi game as well coming up? Is that one? Uh, yes. So, we, so in uh, probably not till July, we're going to launch a uh, game called Hyperspace. And Hyperspace is a Space Empires game, 4X. You know, expand, explore, exterminate, and X something else that no one can ever remember, and I can't either. Extraterrestrial? Um, what? Extraterrestrial? Is that? No, that's not. That's not what it is. Expand, explore, exterminate. Well, well, whatever it is, we'll fill it in later. <laughs> doesn't matter. It's a. Uh, it, basically, the idea is you have that. Um, it, it's got. It's uh, there. You're an alien race, and there are planets out there that are unexplored. And you go out there and you explore them, and you build spaceships, and you go into combat, and you uh, uh, research new technologies, and uh, engage in you know fight your enemies. It's a Peterson game, so it's it's asymmetrical. We have found a way to actually have 24 different alien races in the game, which I'm very proud of. The uh, combat in the game, the game's pretty quick to play for one of these. It's like hour and a half, two hours. Um, longer if you're like a six-player game, right? Or you're all new. Yeah, yeah. There is a... Uh, one of the races is humans, so I guess I said they're aliens, but I guess the humans aren't aliens. The humans, however, are really weird and different from all the other races. Unusual. Usually when the humans come on, everyone else is like concerned because the humans are, are a big problem for them. So all the races have a, uh, a special bonus. They have a unique super ship. A victory point ability that helps them win the game, right? And they have a weakness that hurts them, and that's part of the fun. Like for the humans, the weakness is 
essentially, we call it nationalism, and it's that they can't research a technology that someone else has researched. Because obviously it's no good, because some yeah, filthy some alien got filthy it. Right. Alien did that so, 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 for the research, say, hey, does anyone have, uh, uh, you know, torpedoes? And if someone does, they can't get it. <laughs> so, that's a nice So that's, it makes sense for humans, right? Yeah. So different races have different things. There's one race that is... Uh, that is gaining from another dimension called Valkar. And so they're like unstable in our world. And after they, every time after they produce, they have to pick one of their things and, and like self-destruct it because it fades back into the other dimension. So they're always, oh, right. they, okay. are, they, they aren't really stable here. Then there's, a, then there's one of the races is a time traveler, the Skith. They're really weird races, okay? The, the Skith are, the idea behind them is there's actually only one Skith. But he fuses through time back and forth. And so he makes billions of copies of himself by doing this. So there's billions of Skith. But they're all the same guy, the same dude, and yeah. they don't. So he doesn't have a language or anything because they just like they're all the same guy. They know what they're doing, <laughs> and they're really solipsistic. So they're actually kind of cruel and harsh because they don't understand that there's other things in the universe, right? right? And their weakness is that they kind of got to get confused, like which, like what time it is and when they should do things, and you know. But uh, so that's one of the races. And then there's uh, there's a race of kaiju-like things that you know there's only one at a time, and they're huge, and they colonize a whole planet at once. One of the oh another feature of the game is that the planets in this usually most of these games um, a planet is like it's like a toggle switch either you control that planet or you or you don't you but in this world the planets have continents uh, one to three continents um, and it's quite common to share a planet right so okay. which of course does lead to conflict but it's part of the fun and also the conflicts in a lot of these space games. The conflicts are are really critical. I mean, they're they're important in hyperspace too, but but there's lots of battles, and usually losing and losing the battle isn't like you haven't lost the game because you lost the battle. You go, okay, well I'll make more guys. I'll fight again. So the combat is much more common, much less like in Twilight Imperium, for example. If you lose a big battle, that's it. You're you played it. Yeah, you're yeah, done, yeah. right? If you lost a big battle, absolutely. Your war sun goes down. It's a couple of characters, and that's it. You're out of the game. But in this, you can have you can have a fairly sizable defeat, and you're still in the running. So, which I like. I mean, it takes several such losses to lose you the game. Right. Yeah, that's, that's good. You, know, you don't want a big investment, and then all of a sudden you're out of the game. On exactly. One side of yeah. um, there's uh, you build on industry. You, you win by victory points, but it, but the victory points are based on your position in the game, so it's it's not arbitrary. Right. Right. And uh, <clears throat> the human thing, by the way, is that they their home planet has zero resources. It has nothing. Because it's, it's an asteroid belt. It's been destroyed. Oh, Human world's gone. So the humans come in these giant um, generation ships, bristling with weapons. So they have this huge fleet full of stuff, and the other races are like, oh, crap. You know? so, <laughs> so they're looking for someone to stay, and everyone's hoping it's not near them. <laughs> Another unique feature is that, because I'm a huge Lovecraft fan, uh, of the 24 races, four of them were actually races that Lovecraft invented, because Lovecraft's races... Like they're science fiction things. They live in outer space. Yeah. You know. So so we have them. So you can be the fungi or the star spawn or the old ones or the Indians. But uh, but there's 20 more races you can be. So it's not just them. And the planet for the star spawn, which is Cthulhu's race, is in fact is Earth, is portrayed as Earth. Like they took, that's why the humans aren't there. <laughs> that's anymore, why humans right? got kicked out. Yeah. So. <laughs> oh, that's excellent stuff. So that's hyperspace, and you can play it uh, this weekend if you. Oh, I'd love to get an opportunity. Yeah, like, I'm hoping to play it this afternoon, so it's up to you. So that's hyperspace. Let's see what else we have coming. We have a game called uh, based on a uh, iOS or not iOS, a, a phone game called Dungeon Boss coming up in March. It's a licensed property. 
a light, fast, cooperative game where you essentially go into a dungeon and beat up the boss. And the dungeon is super simple. It's like all the dungeon except for the boss room is abstracted into one room. Right. And then so there's two rooms, and then the second room is the boss. Right. And then it's sort of a push your luck game where you're where you're fighting the bosses. And, and you go into more dungeons in a row and get more and more beat down. But if you, but the more you do in a row, the more treasure you get. So you kind of want to push to that last one, but then, oh, maybe I'll get killed. So then you, so then you're like, maybe I shouldn't push my luck. I yeah, should go to town. Yeah. So, so there, there's that. Um, let's see. Then what else we have? We have in the, uh, after dungeon boss, before hyperspace, it's the, my palantir is hazy, but probably it's going to be, uh, Sandy Peterson's Cthulhu Mythos for Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition. Oh, right. So, so it'll be similar to the Pathfinder book. Yeah. Except, you know, D&D. Well, for D&D, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and there's another game we've got a guy trying to get us to publish for him called Startropolis, which is about building a space station. Right. And it has a 3D space station that you actually snap things together to make. Oh, that sounds cool. And you're cooperatively building it. But as you build it, like... You're making it suck for the other players and like interfering with what they want to build it, yeah, which is which is of course what you want. So yeah, absolutely. So but anyway, that's that game. It's really light and easy. Yeah. So do you prefer the more kind of competitive games, or, or is well, it... well, look, let's look at the games that I have designed by Peterson Games. I designed <laughs> Cthulhu Wars, and I designed Orcs Must Die, and I designed um, Planet Apocalypse, and I'm designing Hyperspace. So yeah, they're giant Ameritrash games for years. That's what I like. So. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's not people. the only games yeah. I play, but uh, you know that, that's your preference. Sure. So, if it's about your um, your role playing history, if you will, um, obviously you're, you're probably known in pen and paper world for Call of Cthulhu. That was yes. the, the big breakout. So, how did you get involved with that, and what what sort of led you to develop that? Game? <sighs> um, when the Dungeons and the Dragons came out, uh, I like owned. I got a copy of the first edition. It was hard to get to. Uh, but but uh, we, so we borrowed a professor's copy that he'd gotten somehow, and me and my friends played it until we could finally get it wrong. And we played that a lot and really liked it. And then um, in 1978, RuneQuest came out, and I'd already played White Bear Red Moon, and I said, oh, this is in that world, Rwanda. And so we got that, we started playing that. And our, our, our habit always was that we were, I was in college at the time, is that we would play about 50% D&D and 50% the flavor of the month. So, right. like, the fantasy trip, chivalry or sort whatever the other, some well, other the game was. The game was, So, yeah. 50-50. And then after six months to a year, we'd get sick of the other game and be D&D again. Then we'd, like, so, so RuneQuest was our flavor of the month. Okay. But, so, the start of the year, it was 50% RuneQuest and D&D, like, always before. But by the end of the year, it was just RuneQuest. We liked it so much, it was right. like that. Well, then a friend of mine, um, Steve Marsh, he knew Greg Stafford. And he told me that we should, that I should, uh... Like, write Greg Stafford with some of the stuff I'd created for RuneQuest. So I did, and then I started talk, calling him on the phone. I mean, it was at his, I didn't, I wasn't like a stalker. He, <laughs> he didn't mind getting calls off you. Yeah, right? he, he did say he didn't. And, and we, and, uh, they, they published a bunch of my monsters for RuneQuest, which were, which was the Gateway Vestiary. Now, um, my history with Lovecraft was that when I was eight years old, I, uh, my dad, we were living in the house, and my dad stored all his books in boxes in the basement, because he knew he wasn't going to stay in the house permanently. Right. We were there three years, so it was wild. So his books were down in boxes, so I'd go down to the boxes, I was one of those annoying, precocious eight-year-olds that reads a lot, and, you know, and that no one really likes, but, you know, 
so, so I mean, other kids like me, but you know, yeah. adults are like one of those kids. So I'd go downstairs, I'd pick out these books, and I'd read them. So I read Tarzan of the Apes, you know, yeah. all these books. But I, but I found this book called The Dunwich Horror and Others, which was printed in 1942, and it was Lovecraft stories. And I like scary stories, you know, mm. so I read these, and, and I'd never read anything like them. And I didn't even fully comprehend them, you know. Like, yeah. If you've read The Outsider, yeah. I did. I read The Outsider and had no idea what the ending meant. Right. It took me years to figure out what the well, polish class eight, was. Right? I was eight, you know. Um, so, but I was interested in Lovecraft, and Lovecraft was really hard to find, and no one else had copies of it. And literally every other person that I knew who knew about Lovecraft had learned it through me. Right. It was okay. there by nature. So anyway, but in the Gateway Bestiary, um, I put some Cthulhu monsters, some Lovecraft monsters. Okay. Yeah. I didn't call them Cthulhu monsters; I called them Lovecraft monsters because you know that's what they were. And um, and then. Um, I, I uh, started thinking about uh, Lovecraft's works and RuneQuest, which I liked, and I, and I called Greg and said, or wrote him and said, I would like to do a RuneQuest supplement, which is the RuneQuest rules in a new world, and it's Lovecraft Dreamlands. Because mm. that's like a fantasy world. Yeah. And he said he wasn't interested because he already had someone in Texas, actually, working on a, 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 a whole game based in Lovecraft's universe in modern times. And I was like, really? Wow! And I was really interested in being involved in that game. So I said, is there anything I can do to, can I approve for you? Can I do anything? Is there? And then he wrote back and said, well, this guy isn't really doing that fast of a job. We're unhappy with it. So we're just going to give you the whole project. Nice. So I was like, wow. <laughs> so then uh, a year, I wrote it on an IBM Selectric typewriter, not, right? It didn't have word processors. Wow. Uh, it took me about a year. And at the end of the year, we had the Call of Duty. And that was where that came from. Brilliant. So it seemed to um, capture quite an imagination at the time as well. Do you think it's because it was so different than the D&D type games? Or? I think that it was because it was so different from the D&D type games. Because every other role-playing game, then and now, was a game where you go out and you fight the monsters and you get experience and you take the experience and you get a character and you get more stuff and you go fight the monsters again. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's what I was playing with D&D and Request. Okay? And Call of Cthulhu... Like, fighting the monsters was sort of like a failure. That's or maybe not a failure, but it was like a, it was like terrifying. Yeah. You weren't looking forward to fighting the monsters. That was like a bad thing. And the, and your characters didn't get better over time. They got worse. And your big treasure was like a moldy old book that nobody wanted to read. Um, and, uh, and, and, you, and you didn't get fame and prowess. You had to like hide your secrets from the world. You can't let anyone know about this. Because if they do, there will be more horrors unleashed upon us. So, so uh, your big, your big thing was going to the library, you know, or stuff, right? And uh, and 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 also there weren't puny monsters to hone your skills on, because like the weakest monster in the game was another cultist, and by definition they're just as good as you are, yeah, but... you know. And also probably better because they're more murderous and they have a, a, a cult structure to back them up. And there's the fact that, that most role-playing games set you up as, like, someone better than the average person. Mm. And Call of Cthulhu was aggressively proletarian in that regard. You are just a guy. Maybe you're a dilettante or something, but you're not better than the average person. You're just a person. And um, I, and I, 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 all my, all through Call of Cthulhu, I fought against having some, you be part of a secret government organization. Or kind of, I said, if you want to be part of an organization that goes around in Cthulhu monsters, that's fine. Set it up yourself. Yeah. Right, have your own organization, and I think one of the reasons that Call of Cthulhu survived and other horror games didn't 
is because the other games made it, said, well, the Call of Duty is cool, but let's do it like a regular horror game. And so you played chill or whatever, and they made you be this tough guy fighting monsters, getting treasure. It was the regular role-playing system, which you already had in other ways. But yeah, Call of Duty sure. was so contrary and a different other role-playing thing that uh, that if, if you wanted to, <coughs> to fight monsters and be heroic and gain treasure, there was lots of options. But if you wanted to be this, this weird, geeky guy that that studies ancient books and, and gets killed by monsters, this was it. Yeah, this was where the things were actually scary. As a result, it had a, it was also it also was a surprisingly big hit among um, women. Well right, okay. So it was the first kind of like where to bring uh, ladies into role playing. Because right? because they didn't have to worry about being the most monster guy in the group. They could be because and also girls like scary stories and scary movies. Yeah. Right? That's you know true. And, yeah. and, and, and Hollywood sometimes forgets about that. They're like, oh, let's have, let's have more and more nudity and gore in it, and you can have a scary movie without that. I'm not, I have no objection to those things. You understand? No. Yeah. But uh, well, for example, one of the reasons that that Ringu and J horror started making an impact is because once more it was like, oh, you know, look, here's a horror movie. It's really scary, and there's no boobs and there's no gore, yeah. and like, and girls would go see it. So yeah. Then you go with your date. and then it was still scary for the guy, so that worked. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, anyway, so Call of Duty was kind of that game. Right, that's an interesting say. Yeah, no, a lot of women don't want to be a knight in shining armor or a barbarian or even a sorcerer, but but being like a flapper, yeah. you know, or a private eye, that's kind of cool, you know. Absolutely, so yeah. And size and strength also in in, in uh, Call of Duty. I mean, there's stats for it. But that's not really what you're relying on to win no. the game, right? Yeah. Uh, it, if you're hoping straight 18 is going to save you, then you've got yeah, the wrong game. Yeah, it's like, look, I have straight 18s. So you go, well, good for you. <laughs> like, you never see anyone fudge a Call of Cthulhu character's roles, so who cares? Yeah, right? yeah. Maybe power they'll fudge because they want to have a higher sanity. But Yeah, I, I mean, I still find it a, a weird thing that some players playing Cthulhu still want to like go for the bags of dynamite and shotguns and stuff like that. Of course, yeah, well, you know, that, that's what they used to. Yeah. You know, but... Uh, well, I was playing a game here in Germany, and, and um, the, the the bad guy was literally Count Dracula. Right. Okay, it was Count, right? right? And, and so the guy took his gun and went into Count Dracula's office. He had an office. And, of course, Count Dracula, he walks into the office. Like, he had, he actually had a secretary who let him in. And then he walks in, and, of course, the office has bare dirt floor, and there's a coffin and this and the and candle. It's like, it's like awful. It's Count Dracula's office, right? So Count Dracula comes, and he starts shooting him. It was Daniel Stanka. I said... What are you doing? He's not going to shoot Dracula. I said, have you never seen a, a single vampire movie? It's like, what do you think it's going to do? It's Dracula. One of the key... What Every vampire movie has the scene where you shoot him and he doesn't care. And then he eats you. And then he eats you. So he shot him for, until his gun ran out of bullets and then Dracula ate him. Because I... I that, it could have been scripted. So I don't know what he was thinking. That was Call of Cthulhu we were playing, but like, Dracula ate him. So anyway, so yeah. Sure, some guys had the bags dynamite. But here's the thing. The guys that are pulling out the bags of dynamite and the guns in Call of Cthulhu, they're actually, in a large way, acting contrarian against... They're almost following the ethos, because they're follow, they're being contrarian in a contrarian game. Right. So that kind of wraps around. Swings it all back. And it's not like the bags of dynamite saved them, so... Yeah, no. Uh, I guess they like the pretty lights and the explosions and stuff, maybe. I don't know. Everyone has fun their own way. <laughs> yeah. I, I find it a system they can do it without gaining treasure and getting better. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that the only sort of the one the sort of aspect of the Cthulhu style games I've seen which work quite well is Delta Green. I don't know if you've seen any of that kind of stuff, but I have. And Delta Green, of course, is kind of gone back the other way. We'll be tough guys again. Against mm. But uh, but you all, they also get. I mean, so I mean, there's now a number of knockoff uh, Lovecraft games. 
uh, after a call of Cthulhu. But call of Cthulhu, I mean, none of them would exist without call of Cthulhu, so I guess I should see them as collaborating. Yeah. But they're knockoffs, right? They're, they're, they're like, let's also do a Lovecraft game because, but so none of them would exist without Call of Cthulhu because before Call of Cthulhu, no one knew about Lovecraft. Um, I, I got an award for, I'm not sure exactly how it was titled, but it was essentially Greatness in Lovecraftiness, um, <laughs> from the Providence, um, uh, HP Lovecraft Festival. And they said, the first, they gave the, I got the second award. The first one went to Stuart Gordon, I believe. Because, and what they, their argument was, they said that the reason Lovecraft is known today is because in the early 80s, Sandy Peterson did the Call of Cthulhu game, which went among the nerd culture, and Stuart Gordon did his Lovecraft movies, which went among the nerd culture, and they kind of came through three different ways and, and, and infused and made it into the, that's why people know who Cthulhu is, or, right? Right. You know, you have cracked.com talking about Cthulhu, and that's all because of me and Stuart Gordon. Yeah. I don't know what percentage is him, what percentage is me. But, you know, I mean, obviously more people saw the movies than, than played by games, okay. but the games were played a lot, and a lot of people were. So, anyway, there it is. And then people now will say, accurately, Lovecraft is uh, overdone and overused, which I totally get why they would say that. Mm. But my other feeling is that if I, the guy that first introduced Lovecraft, because I did mine before Stuart Gordon, can't do Lovecraft, and things have come to a pretty... Yeah, at least yeah. I should be able to do it, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. so then, so then here's the other thing that I did, though, which I want to mention, which is that, so Call of Cthulhu sets up the, the fundamental um, dialectic of uh, Lovecraft, which is heroic investigators against the monsters. Mm. Okay? And that, that's what I chose for the game. Yeah. And then every game since then, that's what they did. Arkham Horror did it, uh, Gumshoe Cthulhu, right? Octoon Cthulhu. Elder Sign, they all are investigators against the mythos. Right. So when I came to be, came in 2012, when I decided to do my ultimate Cthulhu game, my last one, it was going to be, um, I, it was, uh, I guess it kind of was my last one still. I haven't done another one. I mean, I guess I'm working at Evil Libraries. I, I said, okay, that's a great setup of investigators against the Redolders, but I don't want to do it again because I did it. We've done that one. And everyone's done that one. So, and one of the things that I always wanted was, uh, in, and I somehow tried to pull this out in the Cthulhu campaign, was always these games and the Call of Cthulhu ends before Cthulhu is out in all its power. Okay, Because right. at that, that, that point, the game's over, and you're like, mm-hmm. oh, no, we've lost. Cthulhu's coming, and you, then you start a new campaign. But <coughs> I see, you never get to see Cthulhu with all his toys, you know, rising from the deep with mountains of protoplasm, telepathy blanketing the everyone's minds, hordes of monsters, all the things that would happen. You never see that. Mm. And I wanted to see that. and But the only way to have that is to have other guys as awful as Cthulhu to face off against them. And that's where Cthulhu Wars came from. Right. Where everyone is the super powerful guy. And one of the things I'm most proud of in Cthulhu Wars is the number of reviews where people have said, in Cthulhu Wars, I feel super empowered. And I think that if I can just get all of my spells and monsters to work right... I'm certain to win because nothing can stop this imbalanced, awful creature. And of course, he's probably right. The problem is everyone else is trying to do it too. They're all yeah, exactly. and they all and they're all grossly imbalanced in their own way. So you just have to find out who is going to win the uh, the race, you know. But and I like the way that's sort of like that imitates the game in terms of like mm-hmm. it's, you've got these individuals who are convinced their way is right and they're going to rule the world, and mm-hmm. the players end up actually living that. And so I'm like, you know, I know that yes. I picked the best faction. I, I'm definitely I had going to win. Say, where are the humans in the 
wars. I said, they're all, you start with nothing but humans on the map. It's full of humans. I said, well, I mean, they're cultists. I said, yep. Who well, do you think is going to survive this? Yeah. <laughs> you know? You haven't got regular guys left at this point. Well, where have you on that? Yeah. Though I have now added two factions of regular humans, the uh, Chochos and the Ancients. Of course, they're like distorted, twisted, Hulu-esque humans, but... Obviously, yeah. Why wouldn't they? Again, they're the best fit to survive, so all is well. Cool. So, uh, so do you think that um, there's sort of like an adage in, in the role playing in the community and others as well that if you put slap Cthulhu on something, then it'll automatically sell? Do you think? I there's a lot of people that do that. Obviously, there's Cthulhu 500 and things like that. Mm. All I can say is that I am not going to do that. I'm not saying that those guys that do that are like morally corrupt or anything. No, no, of course but, not. Uh, but. I guess I don't really like any games that have a slapdown theme, no matter what the theme right. is. It's yeah. be Cthulhu. I want to have a game where the theme is in, in I think if you played Cthulhu Wars, if you played God's War, the theme is vain throughout the game really strongly. You can't it it's really hard to, into the game. It's really hard to peel away the theme. Yes. Um, it just yeah, feels yeah, steeped in it. God's War maybe even more than Cthulhu Wars, but uh, So God's War is sort of set in ground, right? It's totally set in ground here. It's coming out very soon. And it is ex- extremely grand. It's the most Glorantham game I've ever seen. Right. It's more Glorantham than White Bear Red Moon. I mean, it's like you're you're bidding for the Chaos Rift to come out and all the. Fa- well, here's an example. So Ken Ralston's playing the game uh, for the first time. He's not sure, and he's a role playing guy, most of a board game guy, and he's like, he's gonna play Orland. I'll play the or- I'll play the Storm faction. Okay, I'm Storm. So he says, hmm, I'm gonna play. Or he knows a lot about Glorantham, but not board games. So he says, I'm gonna play Orland. He says, he told me exactly the game. I didn't watch the game. I said I was going to play him like like I think of Orlanth. It's a big, dumb bully that gets into trouble, and he played him that way, and he won. By playing Orlanth. <laughs> like, to the stress. That's exactly how to play Orlanth in the game. You play him like like that. And like, if you do it, if you pull it off, you win. Yeah. You know? Whereas if you're playing into the moon, you're like, you're like this weird cyclical thing staring at your navel and worrying about the lunar phase and, and, and enslaving people and letting them go and using these, these, these prank abilities that. So you, you feel like the you feel like the red goddess, right? Yeah. So all the factions have their own thing. The darkness is like this loathsome scavenger that goes hides in the night and comes out and strikes you when you're weak and kicks on you when you're down. And so everyone hates her. Yeah. And, and then chaos is just terrifying. And everyone kind of hates chaos, but the other guys they can't win either. So you can't just gang up on chaos. You have to stop. Yeah, you have to stop storm and earth. Yeah, yeah. And earth is marrying off her wives to everyone. <laughs> but Cthulhu Wars, like I said, it's got that theme, you know. And in fact, the way I designed it was that I didn't work out what powers would be good first. I, I like said, okay, here's Black Goat. What powers should she have? And I thought that's where I came from. And then after I had those powers that fit Black Goat, then I adjusted them. Sure, I just so yeah, you got a bit of balance or yeah, yeah. whatever else. You so they were balanced, but they but it wasn't a matter of figuring out the stuff first. Then right, it's like Black Goat should have this. Black Goat should have this. so it was. Like, yeah, All done with the viewpoint of what they should be yeah. like now. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so it talks a little bit about board games and some of, the, some of the pen and paper stuff. You've also worked in computer game industry? Yes, I worked in the computer game industry from tw- uh, 1988 to 2011. So how do you find that? How do you find that industry? Because it always seems quite a tough one compared to, for example, you've got obviously okay. games is, you've got uh, now a lot of freedom. Is that was there the same amount of freedom back oh, then? Oh no, you don't have freedom in the computer game industry. There's there's uh, there's millions of dollars invested in it. So the, so those guys who invested the money rightly want to keep an eye on whether money's being spent. And also, it's possible to, to like design your game forever and never get it out. Right. You can, right, and there's a huge team, so like, so there's always a bunch of you on the project. It's never, it's never a one man thing. No matter how much some 
computer guys try to pretend that's how it is. It's not. It's, it's always a huge team effort. And, uh, and so everyone's working together and it takes years to do it. And, uh, you know, and you end up with the, with games that are, um, that are more complicated and in depth than any board game or role playing game can ever be. But that are also, you know, and then the, the, like the money you make is spread among a giant team of 70 guys. So there's that too. So I'm much happier doing board games because, uh, for one thing, because they're small and there's not millions of dollars invested, I can do what I want. Right. Um, also, the money is spread among like the six people in my company instead of the seventy-five people in my company and my publisher and that. And I can and when I like in a computer game when I when I said okay I need to make this adjustment to the game I would like we need to do this change and then we have to do a build and it would take a day or two or maybe more and then the artists couldn't get around to it because they were busy doing some animations and then who knows how long it would take to get to try the next stage. Right. But here I could be in the middle of a playtest and say okay this guy's going to have fifteen more hit points and then. And then there it is. Just make it happen. Just make yeah. it happen. Yeah. So that's a uh, that's. Yeah, it's good to have uh, But I love the computer game world. I mean, there's, uh, yeah. it's a. Uh, I mean, if, if Peterson games ever were bust, I'm sure that's where we'll go back. But do you think there's? Um, I mean, it seems that board game cafes in the UK are certainly springing up everywhere. Board games are getting more popular, more mainstream. I, I don't know whether it will get to computer game levels, but do you think there's a chance that the board game industry and stuff will get to sort of like every six round it? Well, the the the, the crippling handicap the board games have is that board games up until like. The 80s were terrible. Yeah. You know, sure, I mean, yeah. Risk and um, Stratego and Monopoly are terrible, terrible games. Yeah. And that's the perception you have of that's what the, Scrabble is a terrible game, you know? And so that's the perception people have of these games. I mean, what do you do in Scrabble? You sit there for 45 minutes to get around to your turn. And then you can't do the word you figured out because someone else took it. You know, I mean, it's 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 uh, there's a little bit, there's some fun in it, but there's not much. You know, yeah. I guess chess is fun, right? Checkers yeah. is fun, but but so there's some that are okay, but really these are terrible games. And so the perception a lot of people have is that that's what they're like, and it's taken. And now with the advent of actual fun board games, it's taken a while for people to kind of. Uh, Wake hook into that. Yeah, yeah. Well, for a while, the new board game thing was war games, right? Mm. And then nobody could play those. I mean, okay, yes, I played them. I still love them, but they look super complicated because they are, and you can't just get someone into it. You can't get your wife to play Battle of the Bulge with you, right? Not, not like or your girlfriend. Yeah. <laughs> not a chance, right? But my wife will play Ticket to Ride with me. Yeah. And and so these games are sneaking through. People are starting to learn that hey, board games are cool. I don't know if they'll be at board game cafes, but. Uh, but you know, in, for example, in my church, there's a, there's several families that love board games, and uh, they they come to me for advice on what board games to do. I didn't introduce it to them; they knew about it on their own. Yeah. And uh, they'll play the games. They'll call me with questions about rules sometimes, and of course, sometimes I don't know because I don't play every game. But it's, it's, so, yeah, it's it's increasing, and I think I think it will I think it will always it will never be as mainstream as like watching TV, right? Or course, computer games. Yeah. Because the, the great the great handicap in a board game is that you have to have a group of people meeting together at the same time. And the and with a computer game, you can do it whenever you want. It's always it's like a dog. It's always ready to go right now. Yeah. Okay? Just like your dog is. The dog is okay, hey, let's do something. It's cool, you know, wake it up, let's go. But your friends, you, you know, if you, like for example, if I want to play a board game with, with my, my friends, the uh, the Christiansons, then, like, I have to call them and say, hey, when can we come over and do it? Then they have to set up a time. And, they, and of course, because I'm now, like, an old fart, they have to get babysitter for their kids. And I don't have to get a babysitter for kids, right? But but, but they have to make sure that it's not needing something else happening. And then we get together. 
Okay, or with my regular gaming group, we know every Saturday night is the game night, and they all show up that night, right. that one rigid time. Mm. Uh, and of course, sometimes they can't come because you know they're on vacation in Hawaii, or they have a they, uh, two of them work at a uh, at a Catholic girls' high school, and so they have to go like monitor a dance or something, you know. So there's always, but there's so this, but they can get together at least, right? Yeah. But it's but there's a more rigid. It's harder. It's physically harder to get people together for the board game. Right. Yeah. And absolutely. so that means that you have to be more dedicated to a board game than you do to, to be into computer games or TV or things like that. Sure. And that will always slow it down, but it will certainly be more popular than they had been. Yeah. Because they are they are more fun. And when people play them, like I play with my sister, and they're like, hey, this is fun. And she might have time to play it again, except when Sandy shows up and she says, Sandy does board games. Let's play a board game with them. Yeah. Okay. But uh, but they'll play them then, and they know they're fun, so that's kind of on their radar that games are fun. Yeah, so, sure. So they don't look at, it's no longer like they sneer. You play board games, jeez, you know. Yeah, yeah. Games. So there's still an element of that, I find. But yeah, it's definitely becoming more Well, not so much in America. Maybe, maybe England is behind the time. Well, as always, we've got that kind of like old state tradition. But well, yeah. well, actually, I mean, England to me always seems like it's in some ways ahead, in some ways behind. It's like I guess that's how it should be. It's yeah. different. Yeah, that's how you do it, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. But as, as a younger generation, kind of grow up with board games and know that they're fun and do it, then you know they'll get to our grand old age, and mm-hmm. then presumably three generations will know. Well, I've been watching the games change over time because as a kid, I was playing Clue. Which you would know is Cluedo, I guess. Yeah. And uh, Stratego and, and Risk. And then when I got, I found out about Avalon Hill games, then I started playing more games. Mm. And then eventually other kind of games appeared in the 80s, like uh, Civilization and things like yeah, that, Britannia, yeah. you know, and I started playing them. And then gradually, and then there was the, the boom in the 90s of, uh, the, of the, the French and German Family games that yeah. were just fabulous. Yeah, yeah. and uh, so then that, then that also also in the eighties, you, you had like Axis and Allies come out and some of the big milk and fiber things. Someone's making money on them, so I mean, I am now, so I guess I can. What can I say? <laughs> you can come but support them now, right? Yeah. So, do, do you think there's much of a future for role playing games then? So, you know, they seem like always going to be. I just even read, harder I just read a analysis of how much money each of the different categories of games was making. And they had computer games and home games and board games and role-playing games and card games. And role-playing games was the smallest. Yeah. It doesn't mean that you can't make money doing it. It just means it's the smallest. And I think part of the reason is, I think part of the reason is because uh, you don't need very much of an investment to play a role-playing game. If you, do you have a role-playing group? Uh, only a virtual one online. I don't have a real life. Okay. Okay. But, but if you have had one. Oh yeah, plenty okay. of games. Okay, in that role-playing game, how many of the players have bought the rules? Just the GM, usually. Maybe one other player. What was the other player's investment, cash-wise? Just turning up with some chips and drinks, maybe. Huh? Yeah, but as far as the game, <laughs> as far as the manufacturer, just, yeah, yeah, no, he's no. getting nothing from these guys. Absolutely, yeah. Right? The GM bought the game, and, and some things, and now in my group, everyone has a copy of the rules, right? But, because they're like old hardcore gamers. But they don't, but like, no one buys the, the, the expansions, are mostly um, adventures, right? Mm. So, like, they can't buy them. That's you know? right, yeah. Uh, now, Pathfinder yeah. is trying to solve that problem a little bit by having expansions with monsters and expansions with new races, and, right? But the, fundamentally, there's not... There's only so much money you can spend on a role-playing game yeah, before you're, before sure. you're tapped out. Um, Which is it's a good thing and a bad thing in terms of, like, there's a low cost to get invested in playing. There's a low cost to investment, and that's fine, but it also means that, that the manufacturers... Like, you can't have... Tons of companies surviving on this because absolutely right. And also, the other thing is that once someone starts playing role play, it's like with a board game, 
<coughs> you know, like you can you own a board game, then you go out and you buy another board game, and then you buy another because you want to try the new board game. So, you're, like, so, so one of the ejections people have to Cthulhu Wars is that it costs two hundred dollars, and I can buy five of the board games from that, which is absolutely true. Um, and my argument is that if you were um, riding in a Mercedes instead of a Audi, you wouldn't whine constantly that it costs more than an Audi, right? If you were having a steak dinner instead of a McDonald's hamburger, you wouldn't complain about how much the steak costs. You would just eat the steak and enjoy it. Yeah. So I don't think every game should be a $200 behemoth, but I think it's okay for one or two games on your shelf to be a luxury game that stands out. Yeah. Especially if it's not just for show. Mm. I, I, right, because if you play Cthulhu Wars, you know it's not just, I mean, it, it's playable. Oh, yeah. It's fast moving. Yeah. It's not one of those things, like, for example, like, uh, I love Twilight Imperium, and I don't think it's really for show, but it takes nine or ten hours to play. Yeah, and getting so people together to play that game, that yeah. is really bad. You know? Um, so, but Cthulhu Wars is an hour and a half. Now, of course, Cthulhu Wars is hard to transport, there's that. But I think it's okay to have one or two games like that, and even 200 bucks for how much plays you can get out of Cthulhu Wars is not. A total deal breaker. Yeah, absolutely. If you look at going to a football game in the UK, for example, it might be fifty pounds to go and watch ninety minutes of football. There you go. So yeah, and then, like... and be, but if instead you bought Feast for Odin, you could play that again and again. Yeah, absolutely. You know. Yeah. Uh, now, now the other issue though with board games, if I get Feast for Odin, every time I play it, I play it with a different group of guys. Mm. Well, I mean, there's some overlap, right? Because yeah. my son says I want to play it, right? But but if you're playing a role playing game, you have to play with the same group of guys. And in fact. Sometimes if one or two guys don't show up because they're busy that night, you can't play that role-playing game because, like, what are they going to do? Hold the horse? He's, he's critical. He's got to talk to the troll queen, right? <laughs> so, so it's more rigid than a board game, which makes it, makes it harder to organize your group, mm-hmm. although they are a pretty dedicated group when you get them. And the other issue is that the companies make less money off them. Yeah, so those are, always, those are going to limit role-playing games. An interesting interaction I've seen recently, certainly amongst friends with their groups around the country, is that they seem to be going more towards, um, there is that trouble getting people together, so one or two people won't turn up. So what they'll do is play board games, and it seems on the last certainly couple of years that the gaming groups, in inverted commas, that used to do role-playing games, seem to spend more time playing board games because people are That's what I do. When we don't have enough guys for the role-playing game, we play a board game. Yeah. You know, but also I torpedo that sometimes because I want, like, I... They'll come in and say, "We don't." So we role play or something else. Like, well, I really need hyperspace tested. So, you know, yeah. so they're they're kind of screwed because they have like their GM is a game designer, right? So, they, so yeah. I make them play my games. But another thing is that like if you're playing Pathfinder, I don't know what do you play? Call of Cthulhu, Pathfinder. Uh, play some Cthulhu. I play, play all sorts. Blaze in the Dark is the recent one. So anything from indie games to the more recent ones. Well, everything. most I think I suspect without with some evidence back it up that most people have like one or two role-playing games they play. Right. If you play Pathfinder, you probably don't also have an active D&D campaign that you run. Right. You, you, right? you pick one. Yeah. Or something, you, have, you pick one. So once you've got that one, so but with a, but again, with a board game, you get Feast for Odin, next week you pick up Pandemic Legacy, mm. and next week you pick up Twilight Imperium, and next week you pick up Evil High Priest, hopefully, right? You, you can keep getting more board games. Yeah. But you don't want to go out and keep getting more role-playing games because what are you going to do with them? You know you're not going to play this thing. <laughs> yeah. you, know, you already have a Pathfinder group. You're going to go to your Pathfinder and say, let's play D&D 5th Edition in Ravenloft. And they're like, we have this whole adventure that we're going on in Pathfinder, right? We're, what the heck, dude? You know, and, and if you do torpedo them and get them out of Pathfinder into Ravenloft, then after a year in Ravenloft, you, you can't come back and, you know, you know, you know go you're, back you're, to your old game. Right. <laughs> so they tend to, so what I'm saying is that, Role-playing games tend to discourage buying lots of copies of games. Yeah, absolutely. I suppose one of the companies I've seen that seem to be doing a little bit around that are uh, Fantasy Flight Games. 
they've got an interesting model in various things they do for getting to buy more of their stuff. But uh, particularly each of their games has a different set of dice, so uh, and not quite enough dice to make it comfortable just to have one set. So it seems like they're built around uh, getting players to buy dice, if not role playing books, you know that kind of thing. So well, if, I mean, if you, you can, can find you things around the game to buy, stuff too, yeah, right? Yeah. But uh, yeah, there's ways to get more money out of them, but. Fundamentally, the fact that you have to do these things, like all all you have to do for uh, a board game is like make a new board game and people can buy it. Buy it you know? And then uh, something that I learned with uh, back at Chaosium is that people will buy the expansions in, in large numbers. And uh, then I proved that that would actually work even in uh, computer games because when we did uh, uh, Age of Empires, then I plugged that we should do an expansion called The Rise of Rome, Age of Empires. And Microsoft, who was our publisher, said, Expansions don't sell. You shouldn't do expansions. We said, well, we're going to do the expansion. Um, and uh, the argument was that it's cheap to do the expansion because it's a much smaller team. It doesn't take much time, but like six months instead of two years, and that it will make some money. Right? People will buy it. And Microsoft was like, poo-pooed it. But they, they publish it. And then, when we did our next game, Age of Empires 2, Age of Kings, then Microsoft came to us all high and mighty and said, you have to do an expansion for this because we have learned that expansions sell really well for these games. And, you have to, right? and we said, who taught you that, dude? So they were like, what do you mean? He says, like, we had to hammer through your tiny monkey brain, you know? And, uh, and it, because the expansion sold like 35% as well as the core game, which is fabulous for a, uh, uh, you know, for, like a, 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 for a computer game. Yeah. You know, so they just, and, and of course, so, I mean, the costs of making it were so much cheaper than the core game. And then, they, they, of course, they charge less, but not as much less as it cost, mm-hmm. you know. So, so they just loved the expansion. Then they were constantly coming after us, surrounding us with demands for expansions. Yes, yeah, so it So here's a story of, of, of Microsoft's stupidity too, which is kind of a fun one. It kind of maybe it wasn't stupid. So we, so, so again, my job was always to do the expansions. Yeah. So I'm doing the expansion for Age of Kings, and it's uh, the Conquerors. So I said, well, I'm conquering nations. So I had the Huns. Because like they're conquerors, right? Yeah. The Spanish, right? Because yeah. they were late, right? The other end of the Middle Ages. Um, the uh, the Aztecs, because they're cool. And then the Mayans kind of give the Aztecs and the Spanish someone to conquer. But you know, the Mayans, <laughs> the Mayans were warlike people, and they're cool. So, and also we wanted to reuse the buildings we made for the Aztecs. Right. So we did. So we said, okay, here we are. Four races, just like Rise of Rome, ready to go. Then, then Microsoft called us, and they said, we want you to add Koreans to the conquerors. And we said, well, I mean, it's the conquerors. And the Koreans, to their credit, like, haven't gone around conquering everybody. You know? Not <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, they're mostly just happy to stay in Korea. Right? <laughs> and, and they said, no, no. They said, here's the issue, you see. Because StarCraft, the RTS game, sold three million copies in Korea. And so here was my argument. I said... There's no Koreans in StarCraft. <laughs> so we don't have to have Koreans to sell it in Korea because that's not why they bought it. Yeah. It has Zerg, <laughs> right, and Protoss. <laughs> and they go like, but they said, but it has three. So, and they, they wouldn't listen to us. They insisted we had the Koreans. So five weeks before we're supposed to be published, which is, which is a blink of an eye computer thing, I had to quick throw together a Korean sieve, put it into the game, put in a Korean campaign, and then get it off. And then the Koreans proved to be a really popular sieve. But we did get, had some trouble because the turtle ship model we used wasn't the same as what the Koreans thought it should be. So right. they got mad at us. The fact, apparently no one actually knows what the Korean turtle ship looks like, but there's different, right? And then we called the Sea of Japan the Sea of Japan in it. And they almost arrested the Microsoft representative in that. Really? Because apparently in Korea, it's the Sea of Korea. 
Well, that makes sense. But even yeah. China knows it's CHA. Everyone knows it's CHA, <laughs> but Korea, like, you called it the wrong name, you're bad, right? And, uh, and then they got mad at us because we had, in the campaign, Japan invades Korea, because, like, they did. Yeah. They, right? And they fought this big war, and the Koreans totally spanked the samurai and sent them back. And they didn't like that, even had the words that said, we don't like to talk about this war because it gives the Japanese the rights to own Korea. So how does it give the Japanese the rights to own Korea? You beat them, you kicked them out with the tail between the legs, but they, it was, we hadn't realized there was politics about a war that happened in the year 1192. That's, right? well, you had five weeks to research this, Andy. Come on, yeah. right? <laughs> At least we had turtle chips. Um, anyway, it was a popular sale, and I don't think we sold three million copies in Korea, because uh, the Koreans, I'm sure, did not care if there was Koreans in it. I thought but, the story uh, from that, that story was going to be that Microsoft decided to put... Um, it's Koreans in StarCraft and things like that. That was a lesson they would have well, learned. Well, StarCraft wasn't their game, right? It was, it was Blizzard. But, uh, oh, of course, yeah, I suppose. That's they, were, they, were, they, they, they just had uh, penis in the Blizzard. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. So it's a, it's a lot easier and uh, more gentle for you being your own boss, I guess, and just having your own company and doing your own thing and not having to uh, ask to... Yes, but I also am, am skating on thin ice and then I can make my own mistakes and there's no one to, to bail me out. For example, I don't have the big deep pocket guy to save me if, when something is terrible so yeah well, there's nothing been too terrible so far right you, you're doing pretty well I would say well I mean we're a small company so we're always like walking that that, that tight wire but uh, sure you're only as good as your next product I guess in one yeah. way cool well it's been brilliant to talk to you Sandy thanks very much for your time mm-hmm. and uh, I'll put some links up in the show notes for every two so we can link it to Kickstarter or whatever else you've got going on at the time when the show goes out thanks for speaking to us you bet <laughs>